So we're in this series called That's Life, things that come along that uh, are just a part of doing life. And I want to tell you about a That's Life moment that happened to me yesterday, first time in my life that this has happened. So my wife took our kids school shopping to get some new clothes for the upcoming school year. And they came home and were showing me all the things they bought. And my oldest son showed me a new pair of shoes that he got ready for school. Those are cool shoes. And I remember thinking, man, I like those shoes. I would wear those shoes. A little bit later on, I was getting ready to come and preach uh, here at the Lake Forest campus for our Saturday night service. And I was getting dressed on Saturday nights, pretty casual night. You know, it's like you get to wear jeans to preach on Saturday night. So that's always fun. So I wear jeans. I put on a kind of casual shirt. It's gray and red. And, and I thought, you know what? Saturday night? I'm going to wear sneakers. Not like running shoes, but you know, the kind of canvassy shoes that you would wear with jeans. And so I have a pair of these shoes. And so I grab them, I put them on, and I look down and I'm like, man, these don't work at all. They're kind of old. They're brown. They don't match the shirt that I'm wearing. And then it occurs to me, my son just got this new pair of shoes. I wonder what size those shoes are. He's 13. And I remember looking at him, I'm like, yeah, th- he's not that much smaller than I am anymore. So I go down and, and He's out at the pool swimming, you know, with the rest of the siblings. He's not around. And, and I, I remember where he put his shoes. So I look at the tag. I'm like, I could wear those shoes. So I put on my 13-year-old son's shoes and I wore them to church last night. And I preached in my son's shoes and they looked great. They matched my outfit. I was looking pretty smooth. And I learned a lesson in that, that if you've got kids and they grow big enough, sooner or later... Dad can borrow their shoes. Like, that's life. But I have a warning for you. If, if you're a kid and you keep growing, sooner or later, mom or dad might borrow your stuff. I guess that's life. So in this series, we're looking at some of the major inevitabilities of life. And I want to welcome those of you at the Crossroads campus and at the Highland Park campus. Uh, so glad that we can be in this series together looking at some of the really important things in life. So a couple weeks ago, we looked at the inevitability that death is a part of life. And we saw from Romans chapter 5 that with a relationship with God, we have reason for hope that we can overcome death. Last week, we looked at Romans chapter 6 at the inevitability that in this life, we all serve somebody. And we saw that by nature, we all are born as slaves to sin. But with a relationship with God, we have the freedom to serve a new master. And this week we're looking at another of the major inevitabilities of life, and we're going to continue looking to the book of Romans to help us unpack and understand this. But the the thing we're going to talk about today is the reality that in this life, we are all governed by laws. We're all governed by laws. Now, I think that in response just in general to the idea of laws or rules, we tend to fall pretty clearly along two different lines. Some of us are rule followers. We like rules. We want to know the rules so that we can keep the rules. We want everybody else around us to keep the rules. Drives us crazy when somebody around us knows the rules, but they won't keep them. And so can I just sort of test us here, whether you're at the Crossroads or Highland Park campus or right here at Lake Forest, if, if you're a rule follower, would you hold your hand up high? This is you. you are a, you're loud and proud. Turn around and give a high five to the nearest rule follower near you. Like, yes, we are the ones. We're, we're maintaining society. Things would fall to chaos without us. We like laws. Laws are good. 
And then there are others, and you may be in this camp, you're a rule breaker. Just because it's a rule, you don't like it. It might be something that you love, but if somebody tells you to do it, uh uh-uh. Laws were made to be broken. You're a rule breaker. Hold up your hand if you're a rule breaker. Yeah? Yeah? Yeah. And so I I see those of you that that are willing to raise your hand, but I know that there's at least that many more who didn't raise your hand just because I told you, raise your hand. You know that. You know who you are. You know who you are. There are rule followers and there are rule breakers. And no matter how we respond to this idea of laws, it's just an inevitable fact of life that we're all governed by them, whether we like it or not. And we're governed by different kinds of laws. So we're all governed by natural laws. You might call these scientific laws. They're laws that we discover by experimentation and evidence around us. So the law of thermodynamics tells us that water freezes at 32 degrees every time. Water boils at 212 degrees every time. It's a law. The law of gravity tells us that if we lose our balance and trip, we fall down, not up. It's a law. The law of gravity governs all of our experience in this life. The law of inertia tells us that objects in motion tend to remain in motion unless an outside force acts on it, and objects at rest tend to remain at rest unless an outside force acts upon it. So if I had a cotton ball here today and I threw it, it wouldn't go all that far because the law of inertia tells us that objects with low mass have very little inertia. So a cotton ball doesn't weigh very much. It has very low density. So it doesn't take very long for just the air pressure around it and gravity to bring that cotton ball to a stop. Low mass, low inertia. On the other hand, if I had a bowling ball and I were to, you know, wind up and really give it a good heave and we were to open the doors and just let it roll, it would take a while for that bowling ball to stop rolling. Why? Because it's got higher mass, higher density, higher inertia. We're governed by natural laws. And we can learn some things by these laws that apply to other areas of our life too. So for example, you may be here today in church because you've got some spiritual inertia in your life. This is part of the rhythm of what you do. You're rolling along in your relationship with God and so you come to church. Others of you may be here because you recognize you've got very little or no spiritual inertia in your life. And unless some outside force acts upon you, your object at rest is going to stay at rest. Some of us are spiritual cotton balls. Doesn't take much to get us going. But it also doesn't take much for us to peter out and stop. And you may feel like a spiritual bowling ball or a spiritual boulder. And it's just hard to get any inertia moving in your life. If that's you, I want to encourage you that when an outside force acts upon you and gets you moving, it's those kinds of people that can change the world through their relationship with God. So if you're here, you've got no spiritual inertia, and and it's been a while, I want to encourage you to invite the presence of God, to invite a relationship with God, to get some things moving in your life that maybe aren't moving today. We're all governed by natural laws. We're all governed by scientific laws. That's life. But there are other kinds of laws that govern us as well. We're all governed by social laws. Jurisprudence 
is the theory behind a system of laws to help society run, to help people get along in a peaceful environment. So on my drive here today, for most of the drive, I went about 45 miles an hour because social law has established speed limits, and for the most part, I follow those speed limits. Now, social laws are different than natural laws. You can't break natural laws. They just are what they are every time. But we have the ability to violate social laws. And because of that ability, they have to be enforced with consequences. So when I was younger, it took hundreds and hundreds of dollars to convince me of the wisdom of jurisprudence behind speed limits. But now, today, because that law has been enforced repeatedly with increasing consequences, for the most part, I follow the social law of speed limits. We're all governed by social laws. Small laws, small consequences. Big laws, big consequences. We're all governed by laws. That's life. There's another kind of law that if you were to do some research, maybe go online and just Google laws, you'll find this category of so-called laws called universal laws or metaphysical laws. And it's no secret in our culture, ideas uh, relating to Eastern mysticism or New Age movement uh, is is increasingly prevalent, and people have codified what they would call universal laws into various sets of laws. So some say there are seven universal laws of the universe that govern things that are sort of higher than the physical reality. Some say there are 12, some say there are 20. I found a list, someone said there are 105 of these kinds of laws. And these universal laws are people's attempt to make sense of the world they cannot see. Very often they'll take natural laws and try to apply them to metaphysical things. And so we find things like the law of vibration that says just like every physical thing has some kind of a vibration to it, same thing is true for our thoughts or our ideas so that every thought we have has a metaphysical vibration that resonates around us. So you might have heard of good vibes or bad vibes. The Beach Boys knew all about the law of vibrations. And and some would say that these laws are also the way to make sense of a relationship with God, to understand spiritual things and how God works in the universe. So some would say there's a law of divine oneness, that in some divine mystical way, everything is interconnected, and this is how we come into a relationship with God. With God, Or some would say there's a, a law of divine flow, that if we just center ourselves in love and service to others, that's how we connect with our God self and find a relationship with him. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not bringing up these metaphysical laws in order to endorse them or affirm them in the way that I would natural laws or scientific laws, but I bring them up for a very specific purpose, and that's to say that it's part of our human experience to try to make sense of the world around us in terms of laws. That helps us wrap our minds around reality. We naturally think in terms of laws. And so those who would claim to be enlightened would say, this is how to make sense of things you can't see in the metaphysical world. You can understand it according to these laws. It's laws that make it safe for us to go new places and try new things and gain new information. So, for example, I could take my family on vacation to Australia or China or Ireland, and I'm not afraid at all to take the family swimming. Why? Because I believe in natural law that wherever we go, with a little effort, we can swim in the water. I believe in social law that says nobody's going to shoot us and kill us for going and swimming unless we 
you know, go swimming someplace we're not supposed to. But as long as we stick to the public places, I'm not afraid because I trust in those laws. And in this category of universal laws, some would say you can explore spiritual things because you can understand them according to these laws. But I think there's a better way for you and me to understand how to relate to things we cannot see. Ultimately, to have a relationship with God. And that brings me to another kind of law, God's law. In the Old Testament, we find God revealing His law through the nation of Israel, through the Jewish people. And and it's God speaking into physical time and space to let us know how we can make sense of spiritual things and how we can have a relationship with Him. So throughout the Old Testament, we find statements like this. God has revealed His Word, His laws and decrees. We find instructions like this one from Deuteronomy 30. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to Him, to keep His commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live at increase, and the Lord your God will bless you. According to the Bible, God's law is the way to make sense of the world we cannot see. And it's the way that we can know how to have a relationship with Him. In other words, if you and I want to know God and have a relationship with Him, then we must obey the law that He's given. And that's life. So to help us understand God's law, help us frame our thinking about our relationship to God's law, we're going to continue our exploration of Romans chapter 5 through 8, and we're going to come to Romans chapter 7 today. So could I invite you to open a Bible and and join with me in looking at what we find in Romans chapter 7. If you don't have one with you, there are Bibles in all of our sanctuaries that you could grab, or obviously you could just turn it on on your phone. I'm reading the New International Version as we do a little exploration of Romans chapter 7. Before we do that, want to give a little bit of a framing of the chapter as a whole. We're going to dig into uh, several verses toward the end of the chapter, but as a whole, this chapter in Romans identifies and responds to three different responses to God's law. Just like we all have a reaction one way or another to the idea of laws or rules in general, the reality of God's law evokes strong responses as well. So one way that you or I may respond to this idea that we have to obey God's law in order to have a relationship with Him is to fear it. There's a response of fearing the law. And this is a legalistic response. Legalists fear the law and are bound to it. And the way this fear works out is that they measure themselves against the law. And and when they are not obeying God's law... They're not living up to his standard. They condemn themselves. Or when they do, they feel like, you know what? I'm I'm doing all the right things. I'm following those rules. I'm obeying God's law. Then they can feel pretty self-righteous because they've been able to overcome or accomplish that thing that they fear. They've been able to keep the law. Verses 1 through 6 of Romans chapter 7 communicate to the legalists that fear is not the response to God's Law. Even in the original Old Testament context in which God gave it, God never gave the law so that people could feel self-righteous for overcoming it. And in fact, 
even in the earliest days, there was a recognition that no one, no one could perfectly keep God's law. And it was futile from day one for someone to try and keep every bit of God's law. It was a dying effort. So even in the Old Testament, we find a system of sacrifices, which was God's grace for people who realized that they could not uphold God's law. But not everybody was willing to receive that grace. We find a story in the Old Testament of Pharisees and others who relentlessly tried to obey every bit of the law and were quite proud when they felt that they did. So one response is to fear God's law. This section, verses 1 through 6, also makes clear that even though God recognized and made provision ultimately in Jesus Christ because we cannot perfectly keep the law, it doesn't mean that we can go and live any way that we want. So being free from the law doesn't mean that the law is not binding. And so using a marriage analogy, he talks about where does true righteousness comes from? It comes from a relationship with Jesus welling up from within, not in response to the outside-in pressure of a law. So right living, true right living, serving righteousness as one's master comes through a relationship, not through a law that's been imposed. That's verses 1 through 6. We find another response highlighted in verses 7 through 12, and that is to reject the law. And this is a relativist response. Relativists don't like laws at all. And so they reject the idea that, that God's law would have any binding authority. A relativist blames the law for the problems that we have in society. We don't, we don't want to have a law in place. And in fact, if it weren't for all of these God people, these Christ followers, these people trying to impose God's law in the world, we'd have a better world around us. That's a relativist response to reject the law. And so verses 7 through 12, the Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, defends the law against this unjust criticism that it causes sin and death. He says, no, 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 no. God's law is good. Knowing how to have a relationship with him is good. Understanding his perfect standard is good. It's the fact that we are all naturally slaves to sin. That's our problem. The problem is with us, not with God's law. So that's what happens in verses 7 through 12. And then we come to the final section of this chapter, verses 13 through 25. This is where we're going to spend our time for the remainder of this morning. And it's for those who have a response of embracing God's law. This is a willing response to seek to fulfill it freely, not out of obligation, but understanding God's law is good and living sincerely to try to obey God, to obey the commands that he has given. Now, it's another sermon, it's another sermon series to sort out the nuances of God's law and, and which commands are binding today, which, which commands uh, were just in the original context, and that's not what we're going to be doing today. But, but I want to help us think about, on a high level, our relationship to the law. If you're here today and you sincerely want to obey God, you sincerely want to have a relationship with Him, you know you can't do it perfectly, but you're giving a sincere and willing effort to be a follower of Jesus and to obey God, or you're here because you're kind of exploring that, and you're hearing these messages, and, and, and you're 
wondering about getting some inertia going in your life spiritually, what does this look like for my life? How do I actually keep God's law? And that's what we get help with in verses 13 through 25. In this section, Paul uses very personal language. We see the personal pronoun I throughout this language, describing the experience of someone who is putting all of their effort into obeying God's law, but they're trying to do it in their own willpower. They're they're, they're trying in their own best effort to achieve God's law, and this is the struggle that we find depicted. So we're going to see three different ways that we all need help if we're going to have any hope of fulfilling God's law. Three ways that, that you and I and everyone else needs help if we're going to be law-abiding citizens in God's kingdom. And we're going to see the first one beginning in verses 14 and 15. So I'll invite you to look there with me. Verses 14 and 15. First way that we all need help. He says this, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Have you ever had that experience? Where you want to do the right thing, but then you go and do the exact opposite. Or you keep doing that thing that you don't want to do anymore. I I said I would never do that again, and then, man, blew it. Did it again. Paul's articulating this experience that we have all had, and he says, why does that happen? He says it's because the law is spiritual, but we are not. Fundamentally, God's law is a spiritual law to be lived out by spiritual people, carrying the the spirit that he would give to enable and empower one to fulfill it. But, But the fact of the matter is that in this physical world, you and I are frankly not spiritual in the way that the law is, and it makes it impossible for us to perfectly fulfill it. And the result of an unspiritual individual trying to keep a spiritual law is confusion and frustration. And we can't even reconcile our own actions as we go in our best effort to fulfill God's law. We can't live up to God's law on our own because we're preoccupied with physical things to the neglect of spiritual things. And so we might be commanded spiritually to forgive someone. That's a a righteous spiritual act to forgive someone who has wronged us. But we find ourselves too preoccupied with our own hurt to be able to exercise forgiveness. We're too preoccupied with our own needs, with our own wants, to live in a perfectly spiritual way toward someone else. Or we're, we're too preoccupied with life's demands to really cultivate a spiritual mindset. Has anybody ever experienced when you're, when you're exercising and you're in a good rhythm of working out and, and doing the right things and getting fit, when, when you're doing that, you tend to eat better, you tend to sleep better, you tend to be in overall better shape because you're cultivating physical health by exercising? I think the same is true for us spiritually. When we take time to cultivate a relationship with God and we 
feed the Spirit, we tend to the Spirit, then we tend to have better attitudes. We tend to make wiser decisions and take better actions, and we're overall in better spiritual shape. But just like we've all slid physically and we're in those times when we're not exercising, we tend to eat worse, we tend to not sleep as well, and we're just in bad shape, same things happen for all of us spiritually. When we neglect to cultivate a relationship with God, that inertia slows down, we tend to make poor decisions, selfish decisions, our attitude kind of goes sour, we take bad actions. And that's life. Who among us hasn't had this struggle of preoccupation with physical things or with our own needs and wants that just pull us away from a spiritual mindset, pull us away from a place of being postured to obey God's good law? We need help. We need help because the law is spiritual and we, by nature, are not. There's a second way that you and I need help. We need help because God's law is good and we are not. Look at verses 18 and 19. Beginning in verse 18, Paul says this, I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. How do I know it? For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good thing I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. So not only is the law spiritual, and we are by nature not, he says the law is good, and we by nature are not. And then he explains this by saying, I've got good desires. I I want to do the right thing, and yet... That evil thing that I, that I hate, I just keep on doing it. The logic is very similar to what we saw earlier, except it has the added indictment of saying, my actions are in fact evil and I just keep on doing them. We can't live up to the law on our own because even our good intentions don't always lead to good actions. This shows up in all kinds of ways. I think in my life, the most consistent way this shows up is in my marriage. So I am a really well-intentioned husband. Like if there were an award for the best-intentioned husband, I would nominate myself. And I think I'd have a pretty good shot at, at getting the award for the husband with the best intentions. Like I want my wife to be happy I want her to thrive. I want her to love being married to me. I want her to love our home and just in general have the best life that I can provide. I have great intentions, but it doesn't always work out in good actions. So like several years ago, I was paying attention to my wife's needs uh, and I noticed that she was reading a lot of recipe books about crock pot meals because you know that made it easier to feed the family we got a bunch of kids and I go I've noticed that that she's into this sort of crock pot cooking and I've noticed that this crock pot she has it doesn't work all that well she's kind of frustrated by it it's old she could really use a new crock pot for Christmas You see my intentions? Like, you see how good they were? 
I learned a lesson that year that, that if it had to do with cooking or cleaning or just parenting in general, that doesn't count as a Christmas gift. So, so if, if, if you're taking notes, husbands, maybe you could remember that, that that's, that's not really the way it works. I was telling that story on Thursday night at our Thursday night service at the Highland Park campus in one guy who's got a few years on me says, yeah, yeah, yeah. If it plugs in, that ain't a gift. And I was like, ah, yes. Higher laws. So this shows up in our lives all the time, right? We have great intentions, but they don't always work out into good actions. I was talking with one of our high school leaders um, here at Christ Church, and uh, she was talking about her experience. She has led a small group of, of high schoolers for years. And someone new, a co-leader had joined her kind of as an apprentice to work with her leading this small group of girls, just, you know, being there for them, helping them understand God and, and helping them in their spiritual relationship, and just, you know, generally having a relationship with them. And so her job was to train this new co-leader to, to use that time to apprentice her so that she could be a leader. But after several weeks she found that this apprentice just was, you know, not really saying anything. She was kind of holding back, not engaging. And, and this leader was saying, I realize it's probably because I just tend to, to lead and, and, and I talk a lot. And so what she needs is space. And then she'll really step in and she'll be able to lead and she'll appreciate that space. But I know she's really hesitant to do that. And she wouldn't voluntarily do that. So this leader had this idea that one Sunday night at the, at the high school gathering when they were going to meet in their small group, she was just going to not show up unannounced. And that way, the apprentice leader would have the opportunity to step in and find that, oh, she could lead as well. And she thought, this is a great idea. This is going to help her in her growth. She's going to appreciate the opportunity because I'm not there filling in that space. And so she did that. And, and you might be able to predict the response. It did not go well. This apprentice leader felt betrayed, felt abandoned, felt like you know, she was out there and, and totally outside of her comfort zone. It did not go well, and it created a, a lot of tension in that relationship. And of course, they reconciled and figured it out. But what this leader learned was, I did what I would have needed in that space, not what my apprentice leader needed. Did a poor job of understanding where she was and what she would find helpful. Good intentions, hurtful actions. And I wonder how this shows up in your life. What good intentions do you have? Maybe regularly, but you just keep finding that the result comes out sideways. I, I, I desire to do right the desire is within me, and yet the thing I hate, I just keep on doing. I need help with this. We need help because the law is good, but we fundamentally are not. I want to show you a third way that we need help if we're going to obey God's law in our relationship with him. We need help because God's law has an enemy, and that enemy lives within us. Look at verses 21 through 23. Verses 21 through 23. He says, so I find this law at work. He identifies a new law, this inner law. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. 
For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. And this is sort of a climactic statement that he's been building on throughout this chapter. You've noticed that I've sort of pulled out a couple of verses here and there in order to make the first two points, but all woven in between those is this growing recognition that there's something within us that wages an outright war against obeying God's good law. And it doesn't mean that the law is not good, but he's increasingly aware of the absence of goodness within us and and this battle that's being waged by this law of sin against the law of God. And it began back up in verse 13. I just want to sort of walk back through and see how this strand is woven through this chapter beginning in verse 13, he speaks about the law and he says, did that which is good become death to me? In other words, did did God's good law create all of this inner conflict within me? He says, by no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. He says, that law of sin within us It uses this opportunity to take our good intentions and turn them sideways, to highlight just how unspiritual we are and to pull us away. It used the very good thing about God's law to wage war within us. That's what this law of sin does. And then jump down to verses 16 and 17. He says, if I do what I do not want to do, then I agree that the law is good. As it is, It's no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. He continues on this very same thought in verse 20. He says, now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So he's recognizing, man, I'm I'm delighting even in God's law. I see it as good. I want to do what is right, but it's this sin that's within my spirit that just keeps pulling me back. I need help. And it all culminates in verse 24, where he just sort of throws up his hands and he goes, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? It's like he's recognized, oh, that's life. Man, this is rough trying to obey God's law and do what is right when I've got this war going on inside of me. And he cries out, who can help me? Who can rescue me from this pattern? And this is what I want us to take away today. There is someone who can help. As much as you and I are incapable of fulfilling and obeying God's law perfectly, which is the standard of having a relationship with him, we're not left on our own. We're not left to cultivate the willpower to obey God's law. There is someone who can deliver us from this inner conflict and enable us to fulfill God's law and to enjoy the life that he provides. And of course, the answer comes in verse 25. Knowing the answer, Paul says, thanks be to God 
through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank the Lord there's Jesus, is in effect what Paul says. And, and it's an act of worship that, that comes after this statement of exasperation. When we've felt our need the most strongly, that's when we're most ready to receive help. And he says that help comes in the form of Jesus Christ. Because it's only Jesus who can take our unspiritual nature and make it spiritual. It's only Jesus who can take our good intentions and turn them into good actions. It's only Jesus who can conquer that enemy of sin that's dwelling within us. And so my invitation to you today is don't fear God's law in a way that you try to do everything in your willpower, in your own strength to measure up. Don't reject God's law because you see it as something bad or a burden that you just don't want to have anything to do with. I want to invite you today to embrace God's law in Jesus Christ. To say, God, I know your standards. I want to be an obedient servant. I want to be an obedient follower because I see that's where life is. Life is in a relationship with God. But recognize that you can never do it in your own willpower. No checklist or schedule or any degree of self-motivation is going to get us there. We all need help and it comes in the form of Jesus Christ. Now all of this in Romans 7 has been setting us up for the way that this comes to pass and we see it in Romans chapter 8. So I hope that you'll be back with us next week as we see how Jesus does these things by his Holy Spirit in order to enable us to live in a way that is obedient and vibrant in a relationship with God. But for now, I want to invite you to come to Jesus because it'll change your perspective on death. It'll give you reason for hope. Come to Jesus because it will change your perspective on serving in this life and the master that you serve. You can serve righteousness as your master. Come to Jesus because he is that one who can help. Ultimately, I want to invite you, come to Jesus because when you do, that's when you discover life with God. And that's life. Let me pray for us. Lord, today we thank you for your word that could not be more relevant to the condition of our hearts. Thank you for shining a light on who we are, but also giving us a way that we can be free to move into a relationship with you, not bound by fear, but by love and grace. And I pray that you would break down those barriers I pray, Lord, that you would act in a new way that would move us forward in our relationship with you so that we might discover the life that is truly life, life with God. And we ask you to do this work in us today in Jesus' name. Amen.